This is Ibarri Anax, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. When it comes to being able to say that you are a photographer, what is it exactly that you need to do? If you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a lawyer, there's a sort of a clear-cut path to achieving that goal. You go to school, you get degrees, you take tests, you get certified, and at some point, you can get a business card that says, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a dentist. But what if you want to become a photographer? And it's a question that's asked of a lot of professional photographers. How do I achieve what you, you've achieved? How can I lay claim to the very same life experience, to the title, to the reputation of being a professional photographer? And if you've been listening to this show for any period of time, you realize that there's no one clear, clear path to achieving that. And today's guest, Tom Carter, is, is a good example of that because in his book, China Portrait of a People, he's created a, a really amazing body of work, a comprehensive exploration of the people of China. But when he started this project, he was just a traveler, a backpacker, who had been teaching English to people in China and then said, you know something, I want to go out there and I want to explore this world that I'm inhabiting right now. And even though I don't have any experience as a photographer, or even though I don't have a degree, and all I really have is a small point-and-shoot camera, he went out and did something that a lot of people dream of doing. And the result is his book, China, Portrait of a People. And if you have a chance to take a look at the images in, in, in this book, you'll be very surprised at the fact that he didn't have that sort of pedigree that many of us expect people who do things like this should have. And I hope that it's a point of inspiration to you if you've ever had the idea of going out there and making something moving, beautiful, interesting. You don't need permission to go out and do it. Tom certainly didn't. And this book is, I think, is a testament to those people out there, whether they're photographers or any other kind of artist, of how just making the choice to do something can make all the difference in the world. And I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Tom Carter. This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Squarespace. Our friends at Squarespace have this great product, Squarespace 6. It's a do-it-yourself website builder that helps you to make a website or a blog in just a few minutes. Squarespace handles all the hosting, gives you a free domain name, and has 24-hour customer support. Everything on the platform is drag and drop, so it's incredibly easy to use. For example, you can drag pictures straight from your desktop and create custom layouts with multiple columns and text that wraps perfectly around your images and videos. The templates are clean and crisp. It puts the focus where it needs to be on your photography. Additionally, you can switch to a different template at any time. One more thing that's really special about Squarespace is that your images will look great on any device because the website you create will scale automatically to fit perfectly on an iPad, iPhone, computer, or any other device. Import content from your blogs and push your content back out to your social networks. Go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame to start a free trial. No credit card is required. When you're ready to purchase, click enter an offer code below the pricing at checkout and enter the offer code CANDIDFRAME2 to get a 10% discount. That's squarespace.com forward slash CANDIDFRAME. Offer code CANDIDFRAME2. One word, CANDIDFRAME2. 
Well, Tom, welcome to the Candid Frame. How do you say good morning in 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 uh, Mandarin, or is it right? Mandarin, basically. Yeah, we we would say Zhao Shang Hao. Okay, I won't try to repeat that then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll trust you on that. Well, you're you're kind enough to send me a uh, send me a copy of your book, China: a Portrait of a People, and uh, it's it's a wonderful wonderful book. As I told you before, it's so comprehensive. I mean, I've I've seen images of books about you know foreign countries, but the diversity of the images and the perspective I get of life in China was for me a real fascinating one because of what the things you chose to photograph. Tell me about how this whole project came together, or or better yet, when did you develop this interest in China to begin with? Well, the thing that took me to China was a complete fluke, actually, because I was just kind of backpacking around the world, and I had run out of money, and I wanted to keep traveling. Uh, so I was just kind of doing odd jobs back home in San Francisco, and um, I came across an ad on Craigslist to teach English in China, and I figured that would get me across the world. <laughs> so I responded and I accepted the job. And the moment I arrived in Beijing, I found out that the ad had been a scam, like all things on Craigslist in <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things in China as well. So it was it was kind of a predictable thing to get scammed like that. But I stuck it out. And that was back in 2004. And I've been here ever since. But what I did was I taught English here for about two straight years, and I saved up all of my teaching salary to then go backpacking across the entire country for another two years. And at the end of that journey, I had logged a, over thirty-five thousand miles, and I had this enormous cache of uh, photos. And what I did was I pitched the idea of putting together into a book to a publisher down in Hong Kong, Blacksmith Books. And that's how it all came about. So you didn't start off as as seeing yourself as a photographer. You were just a a, a traveler. I absolutely did not consider myself a photographer. I was a backpacker, and I happened to have a, a small camera in my hand while I was traveling, and I took pictures of everyone I met and every place I went to. You know, just candid street photography stuff like that. And I was just doing it for fun. Well, a lot of people take pictures while they're traveling, but and, and and this book is is has so many images in there. Were you just a prolific photographer, or or did that sort of develop over a period of time as you started spending more and more time out there? Being in China, but not being able to really speak the language well or knowing much about the culture, I had this, I guess, interest in immersing myself completely here. But after my first two years. I didn't feel that I was still entirely familiar or knowledgeable of the people and their and their lifestyles and their cultures, and so what I forced myself to do essentially while I was traveling was to get as close and intimate with the people I met along the way as possible, and that included taking their pictures. And these pictures, like I said, they were just snapshots, candid snapshots. But what that did was just open this whole new world up to me. Well, it's amazing because a lot of people, because they can't speak the language or they they don't know anything about the culture, will allow that to sort of be an obstacle to really sort of immersing themselves. And so it seems like you did completely the opposite. So was it just that you were just committed to making that choice of just staying in there because you really wanted to absorb as much as you can? Is that what sort of drove you to 
to, to do it. Cause a lot of people could go on a, on a similar trip, even for an extensive period of time and not produce the kind of images that you produce with your camera. Yeah. I, I tend to do the opposite <laughs> for better, or for worse all the time. And this was just one of those things that worked out in my favor, I guess, just, you know, wanting to meet the people and getting up close and not hiding behind a zoom lens, which I didn't even have. And just really trying to understand as much as possible uh, the things that were completely alien to me. So yeah, using the camera as a kind of medium or uh, gateway to another world. And, and tell us the kind of camera that you were using, because I think a lot of people are going to be surprised at that. <laughs> yeah, the the camera I was using at the time was a 4-megapixel Olympus C4000, which I really liked. But, you know, when I was standing alongside professional photographers, they would just kind of scoff at me or smirk pat me on the head <laughs> um, but I guess in the end I got the last laugh because I was able to photograph an entire book with this extremely primitive point and shoot yeah and it's quite a good camera it may not be as extensive or, or feature packed like some of today's DSLRs but your images sort of demonstrate that it really is what you choose to do with it particularly you know your your choice to get close to create very intimate images of people and some of these images include portraits some of these include street scenes there there are moments in here where people are practicing religious practices or eating and it's just a wonderful glimpse into life in in, in modern china so i i guess you would take it that the fact that you didn't have all that equipment and as an advantage, because it seems like you weren't an intimidating factor with a big SLR and a big lens. Do you, do you feel like that some of the access you gained was the fact that you were so low profile with what you were using to make the images? I think that's extremely accurate. I was kind of invisible, except ironically, I wasn't at all invisible because here I am, a foreigner drifting into these rural villages and mountainous regions, the only foreigner, you know, for hundreds of miles or longer. I guess I was trying not to be obvious to begin with, but once you pull out a camera, whether it's a small point-and-shoot or a massive DSLR, the scenario changes. So what that small camera allowed me to do, however, was to kind of creep up on situations, you know, street scenes, and, and get a shot before really anyone noticed what I was doing. And also the fact that it didn't really have much of a zoom on it. There was no attachable lens. And the zoom feature was pretty... I didn't rely on it because that's it would distort the images. It was a built-in zoom function. So I generally did not use the zoom function on that. And all of the up-close photos and portraits that you see in the book are exactly how up-close I was with those people, mm. you know, millimeters away, inches away. The fact that you didn't really speak the language that well was an important factor in you being sort of able to broach the idea of, re of making these photographs. So were you just using hand gestures or did you develop some, some, a modest amount of Mandarin to be able to communicate with these people? Well, having already lived in the country for two years before I went traveling, I had a, a general foundation of what I call survival Chinese. Um, which allowed me to essentially travel across the entire country <laughs> alone. 
So I did have a, a semblance of the language down, but I definitely could not hold any kind of deep, fluent conversation. Here's the other thing about speaking the language in China. The country is so large and the population is so diverse with a, a variety of ethnicities and ethnic minorities that you literally will have hundreds of dialects in each region. So in all, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of dialects spoken across China. So even if you speak fluent Mandarin, if you go to a place like Southwest China and Yunnan province or Tibet or Xinjiang, they won't know what you're talking about. They won't understand you. And at that point, that's exactly when you have to rely on your hand gestures, your pantomimes, and or just a kind smile. Mm. You talked about going you know, to some of the smaller towns and, and villages as part of this trip. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're able to get the kinds of images that you've got here, because you're, you're off the beaten trail in terms of most of the, the, kinds, the kinds of places that most people would go to if they do go to China on, on a tourist trip. And what did you discover about the country that most people would never have had any uh, any idea of, of uh, I'm sure there was a variety of things, but are there some certain things that stood out for you as a result of making that choice? I think just the sheer variety of the the ethnicities here. You know, the Han Chinese are the majority ethnicity in China, but beyond the Han culture, you have officially 56 other classifications of. Chinese ethnicities across the country. And that's just the official classification. There's probably hundreds, if not more. And so what I witnessed from traveling north to south, east to west, is this changing face of China. You know, if you're up in Manchuria and northwest China or northeast China, and you start there and you migrate west to Yunnan province, you're going to see this profound change in the facial features as well as the language and the lifestyles. And so that's what I was thinking I captured basically with my photos. And I didn't realize that, of course, until the end of my journey, that mm -hmm. I had captured this changing face. So what was the entire period from you know the beginning of the this journey photographically to the last image that you, you shot for the book? Was that about two years that you spent? Sure. I started the journey at the beginning of 2006, and I was just kind of backpacking across the country. And my goal, of course, was to travel across all 33 provinces. And then at the end of the first year, I had started uploading my photos onto Flickr and sharing them with friends and family. And everyone was kind of urging me to do something more grand with my photos than just, you know, personal snapshots. And so I had then contacted this book publisher, Blacksmith Books in Hong Kong, and uh, we talked about it. And he was keen on, you know, perhaps publishing the photos. But then I realized that if I was going to make a book about China, a photography book, I wanted it to be absolutely comprehensive and absolutely perfect. And so that's when I returned on the road exactly the following year and spent another year across the country, not only returning to places that I had been before, but visiting places that at first were completely unknown to me. And that ended then at the end of 2007. And by that point, it had been 35,000 miles. Wow. 
when you decided that you were going to do the book, how did that start changing how and what you photographed? It didn't change how or what I photographed. My approach was always the same, which was I just wanted to see the country. And I had the exact same camera and my technique and my method was exactly the same. All it really did by returning to some, revisiting some of these places was I realized that there was a, a depth that I had missed the first time as just a backpacker. And so personally, it allowed me to explore even more deeply into what I was photographing and why. I think that intimacy that uh, I, sp I spoke about before is largely a result of the fact that, that you get in so close. I mean, that a lot of people would see that using uh, a point-and-shoot camera with a fairly, relatively wide-angle lens to begin with could be a big limitation. But I think that that limitation really allows your images to be especially strong because you feel this connection to the people, whether it's in an, an individual or whether it's in a sort of a group activity, you are so in that space that after going through all the images, that was sort of my big, big takeaway from the photographs because I felt like I really had had an experience. And I think that's what you were going for in, in the book, that you wanted people, even those who had visited there before, to have an experience unlike what they may have had on their own. I appreciate that. And I get that. And I hear that a lot. And I kind of sought that out while I was laying out the photos and, and designing the book and choosing all the pictures. You know, it's, I took a literally a solid month from morning till night for a solid month to sift through all the photos and distill them down to what I felt were the most special images of my journey. And then laying them out into a kind of progressive theme that took the reader on a story from Beijing to Tibet and then when you read it all at once, you do feel that you're kind of on this, this intimate journey across China, visiting, you know, not the famous sites, but just the everyday, daily life of ordinary Chinese people. Yeah. Well, that editing process is always a challenge, but I, do, you, do you know how many images you started off even before you started doing that initial edit? And and tell me about that process of being able to decide which images go in the book and and which don't, because that's that's a daunting process, even if you're an experienced photographer. That was the probably <laughs> one of the hardest things about it. And what I've said before is I don't know what was more challenging, you know, photographing all of China or making a book about it. <laughs> it was an extremely personal thing to me to have to go through all of those images and choose ones that were most suitable for the publication because I had an emotional attachment to just about every scene that I captured. You know, there was always some story behind each image. Um, but of course, I couldn't include tens of thousands of photos in the book. So what I did at first was just kind of choose the ones I liked. And then from there, I went back again and I chose the ones that I really liked. And then from those, I chose the ones that I absolutely loved. And at that point, I had, you know, cut it down to about 888 photos, which is a very auspicious number here in China. It's eights are considered lucky. Mm -hmm. So it, it all kind of worked out well in the end. Well, you said at first that you're more of a, uh, a backpacker or a traveler than you were a photographer. But 
what perspective do you have on your skills as a photographer as a result of looking through those images? Because you not only have a lot of images in this book, but you also have some great images in this book. So what perspective did you have on your own skills as a photographer as a result of editing these images and putting them together for this book? I'm not too proud to say that I really lack technical skills when it comes to photography. Even now that I have a DSLR and I've kind of delved into it professionally, I don't have any technical training or background. I'm not a technical photographer. Even with the DSLR, I shoot what I see and I shoot how I see it, and I'm not out to perfect anything. I absolutely never, ever Photoshop my images, and I absolutely never, ever use HDR um, and I'm not a fan of either of those programs because they kind of distort reality. And for me, photography is about capturing reality, not trying to change it into a fantasy. I'm the first one to say that when you look at the images in the book, there are a number of them that are, you know, not not framed perfectly or they're distorted, uh, you know, because of dirt on the lens or they're blurry because of low light. I'm the first to admit that, but I'm not ashamed of it because to me that's life and that's exactly what that situation was about. You know, there was dirt in the air or it was a low light setting and I wasn't trying to alter that. I just wanted to capture it exactly as it was happening to me. What did you find was the diff most difficult challenge uh, in terms of both traveling and, and photographing? I don't think there was as many challenges was the photographing as there was with the actual traveling. The Chinese are extremely warm, gracious, and amiable people, especially when you venture into the heartlands in the rural areas. If you're the lone foreigner walking down a village, you're going to get invited into tea countless times. You're going to ask, be asked to have lunch with the, the locals, you know, till you're bursting. <laughs> That's that's the Chinese for you. And it's a beautiful, beautiful experience. And if you ask to take their photos, generally, they're extremely gracious about it. And I encountered numerous times situations where they had no photos of themselves or young children had never seen their picture before. And so I was able to show them those photos. And in many instances, I sent them the photos later on in the mail. And in an e equal number of instances, I mailed my book to some of the people who appear in it. Mm. Um, so that was not really a challenging aspect. Uh, but traveling to a lot of these places, getting to these destinations, the, the remote destinations, the unknown villages in the mountains, that's no easy thing for anyone, especially when you don't know the language. So how would you decide where you were going to go? Because as you said, China is a huge, huge place. So... And there are so many different villages that you could have visited in, in particular regions or pockets. So how did you come to decide where you were going to go in the first place? Um, I had a general layout of, you know, the, the country, of course, and I had a general idea of where I wanted to see first. But once I got into these provinces and then these, you know, prefectures and so on, I would just kind of drift around. I would look on a map and just point blindly to it and go there. You know, I had a compass. <laughs> I, I relied more on a paper map and a compass than I did on any guidebook. I don't believe in guidebooks because the beaten path is not what I want to experience or photograph. 
And what I would do was just when I would arrive in a new town or city, whether it was famous or completely unknown, is just wake up in the morning and walk all day and just get purposely lost in that place. And I wouldn't get back to my hotel or hostel until evening, until the sunset. And I would, I did this for two years, just walking and getting lost. And that's how I was able to just capture the, the random daily life of China because I didn't have an objective and I wasn't trying to only go to the beautiful, famous places. I'm a big proponent of getting lost somewhere. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it really gets past that issue of having an agenda in terms of what you're going to photograph. You really keep yourself open to all the possibilities that are out there, particularly when you're walking in a community that you've not been familiar with. And I think one of the reasons people don't do that is that they're fearful in terms of safety. I've never had an issue, but I'm sure that, you know, there's certain places that, you know, you shouldn't go. So how did you sort of negotiate that? Was that ever an issue? No, it wasn't an issue. I got myself into a lot of situations that I later realized were not a good idea. I mean, China does have its authoritarian rules and laws about photography. I mean, it is a communist republic, so there are a lot of things here that you're just not supposed to take pictures of. Mm -hmm. And several times I found myself threatened with jail or deportation (laughs) unless I deleted my photos in front of the authorities. Um, that happened a lot, but I never felt physically threatened. I mean, I have been physically threatened. I've been beaten. I almost died of encephalitis. Uh, (laughs) I mean, the, the adventures and tales go on and on. Um, but China is still one of the most safe countries in the world for travelers. It has one of the lowest crime rates in the world. And so I would never dissuade anyone from just arriving here and going off on their own. It can be done and it's safe. And when you go to a lot of the famous destinations in China and you see these huge diesel buses pulling up with all kinds of tourists, it it almost it almost makes you sick, but it, it, it also makes you proud of the fact that you're doing it on your own. No, I totally get that. Totally get that. People from China, when they've had the chance to look at look at the book, what kind of feedback have you gotten? <laughs> this is I like this question because it's it's really ironic that while Westerners seem to just love this book because it shows so much of China that's never been seen before, Chinese people <laughs> are completely indifferent to my photos in my book and they'll just kind of flip through it and, you know, okay, that's nice. <laughs> you know? uh, my, my in-laws, my Chinese in-laws here, you know, I don't think they've even actually looked through the entire book yet after all these years because it just doesn't fascinate them like it does Westerners. And why do you think that is? Is this because it's all very familiar and they don't see anything unusual or special in these photographs? That's probably one reason. And then you can go a little bit deeper as to say that travel has not been played up as highly in this culture as it has in the West. Mm. Chinese are not travelers the way we are travelers. They like to go on holidays quick brief holidays because that's all they're allowed by their government uh, certain holidays in the year in which case they like everything packaged and pre-planned and they're 
they love to be in a big crowded tour bus with, you know, 50 other tourists. They don't ever, and I'm making generalizations here, of course, but generally they don't ever just grab a backpack and go solo out somewhere to see what their country or some other country holds in store for them. I mean, you do meet Chinese backpackers, but backpacking is definitely not as prolific here as it is in the West. So you didn't make a whole lot of sense to them because not only were you a foreigner, but you're just a guy who's saying, oh, I'm just walking around China making pictures. And <laughs> so they, even when you explained it to people, they probably still looked at you and thought you were some, a really hot duck. I got that look a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they understand that I'm here to explore. And, uh, you know, there's no other reason why I'm in their village. There's, there's two kinds of foreigners in China. There's, the ones who come here to explore, and then there's the ones who come here to report on it and kind of play up the negative aspects of the society, of which there are many, admittedly. But, you know, I think the, the, the journalists, the parachute journalists who, who come in here to get a negative story and then they go back home and report about it, I know they're doing a service to the world, mm -hmm. but I I disagree with that tactic. You know, I think there are positive things also to be reported about China. And I think that needs to be written about more. Yeah. Well, one of the ways China has really changed is economically. I mean, over the last you know, 25 or 30 years, um, even to my own, my own limited memories and, and images of China, it seems like it's been a remarkable change in certain pockets of it, where while in others, it may not have been as impacted as dramatically. So what glimpse did you have about the sort of evolving nature of the, the economy in China and its impact on not just individuals, but the communities, especially since you had a chance to really explore all these different pockets of China? That's an excellent question. Um, the past 10 years have been this really rapid, profound change uh, that China in its 5,000 years of history has never experienced before. I mean, it's all changed just in the past 10 years where they've completely bulldozed, you know, most of their history in places like Beijing and Shanghai. You know, all the old streets, all the old homes are obliterated, gone, erased from history so that they can build skyscrapers and apartment towers um, and this has all happened just in the past 10 years. And during the time that I was traveling here and taking pictures, I captured that transition where, you know, it's half of a, a bulldozed hutong, which is the traditional homes of Beijing, uh, juxtaposed against a, a, a skyscraper in mid-development in the background. And so I think I was lucky to really capture that transition on film uh, whereas now anyone who comes here is not really going to see that transition. They're only going to see the skyscrapers. However, if you go into the heartland of China, you will still see the traditional homes. And I fear that that is what is going to be bulldozed next because China is just on this rampage to develop their country, to catch up with the Western world and become completely modern for better or for worse because what they're doing is eliminating all of their history and all of their true culture in order to become more westernized. Yeah. Are you jacked into at all into the photographic community that, there in China at all? Not so much. 
um, because I've spent so much time on the road, I don't really get to network with other photographers. Uh, and because I'm not an, I'm not a accredited journalist, um, I don't get to hang out in the foreign correspondence club and meet all the players. So I guess I'm kind of like the, the rogue photographer who, who the other photograph photographers they know about, but they don't have, they don't know me personally and I don't know them personally. Um, and you know, it's been a little bit detrimental to my photography career, my budding photography career, I should say, because it, you know, to get a job with a news agency or sell your, your photos to a magazine, you really have to network and know people. And I'm not that networking, knowing person. <laughs> what, what changes have you seen as a result of putting this book out there? Because it's no, it's no small accomplishment what you've done here with, the, with this book. None, really. <laughs> I'm, I'm living a really humble life. I mean, I divide my time between Shanghai and a village in Jiangsu province um, with my Chinese in-laws. And I kind of withdraw myself and keep to myself. And I've always been that way. I mean, I traveled across China for a year by myself. I like to be by myself. I like having me time. I don't like networking. I don't like hanging out. So I'm not able to really feel uh, the impact that I've, maybe that my book has had. All I know is that it is popular. It is selling well. And for me, that's the most important thing because it means that people care enough to read it. And I've opened up some of these parts of China to other photographers so what would you like to do next photographically? Do you want to continue your exploration of China or are there specific other areas of interest where you'd like to be able to use a camera? I don't think there's any more of China for me to explore. I mean, <laughs> I literally have been everywhere in this country. Anywhere I would go is I would be to return. What I would hope I can do is make some kind of career from my photography here with a news agency, perhaps, but again, that's easier said than done. And it's not been for lack of trying that it hasn't happened yet. But in the meantime, what I've done is explored India for a year, which I did in 2009. And I had the exact same approach to India as I did to China, which was just to get completely lost in that country for a solid year as I drifted around. Um, the only difference was that I had a DSLR at the time. So you will see a, a step up in quality in those photos of India as opposed to my China photos. Then I ran out of money in India, which is when I came back to China. And what I am doing currently is taking a break from photography to delve into writing and editing some other projects. Yeah. Well, tell me how the use of a DSLR changed, if anything, the way you photograph people or how people responded to you when you were using a compact camera. Did you notice any any significant difference other than the obvious differences in the quality of the files that you produced? Yeah, it. I wasn't happy with the the big difference. Um, I mean, the the photos are beautiful, but it really changed just my whole experience of being a backpacker because I had a Nikon D 700 and uh, that was with a 70 to 200 millimeter zoom as well as a 50 millimeter and a, and a wide angle. And that's a lot of gear to carry around. 
and what I looked like carrying this thing was like the Terminator, (laughs) 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 this massive machine attached to my arm and, you know, just carrying that thing around all day and just being, you know, you're looked at differently. You're looked at as a professional photographer or a photojournalist and people are a bit more apprehensive of you. Um, they think you definitely have some kind of agenda mm-hmm. at that point. And I don't think that's really good for, for the kind of photos that I like to take. Also, what it did was kind of ruin the intimacy that I had in China because when you're shooting with a 200 millimeter zoom, you don't feel inclined to approach the person. You know, you can hide away yeah. and just take a nice picture from afar and then keep walking. You'll never get to meet that person. You'll never know about that person's life like I did in China. Um, so that was the downside to using a DSLR in India. But again, the photos just turned out beautiful. And in that regard, I'm stoked, you know, yeah. um, but like I said, I, I ran out of money, so I wasn't able to complete India, but I do hope to get back there and continue. Did you find that even though you had a wide angle and a 15 millimeter, that the fact that you had the option of the telephoto was sort of a crux, crutch that you kind of fell back on and, and it didn't really result in you sort of moving in like you did in China? Was it the fact that you just, yeah, oh, I got this lens, so I can do it the easy way. I may not able to, I may not be able to get the shot that I really want, but this is easier. Whereas before, you had no choice. You had to get in there to make the photograph. That is exactly what happened to me. Um, at first, I intended my 50 millimeter to be my walking around lens. Uh, then I would, you know, switch in the 70 to 200 to get some long distance shots. And then I realized, wow, this is really cool. (laughs) I like my 70 to 200 and I'm going to keep using it. And then that became my walking around lens. And, and then I realized months later, you know what? I haven't met any of the people that I've been photographing because I've been shooting from 200 millimeters away, you know? Mm. So that's something definitely have to change up next time. Cause that's, that was something that's so marvelous about the images in the book that you sent me is that, that intimacy uh, it's something that I strive for even in my own photographs. And I can't say that I'm always successful, but when I look at images like this, I go, these are the kinds of pictures I want to make when I'm, when I'm traveling. Those, those pictures that, that speak to the fact that I had an experience, that I just didn't use the trip as just fodder for making a bunch of photographs, regardless of how aesthetically nice they may be. If if I can't tie it into an experience or an encounter I had, I feel like I really missed out. That's it. It's all about the experience. And that's why my China book is extremely personal to me. It's, it's just packed with experiences and personal feelings and emotions. Um, and I need to, I need to return to that for sure. Yeah. Well, when people pick, pick up this book, what are you hoping that they take away from it? You know, cause as you said before, there's an impression that we have of China now, which is very different from what uh, we had, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Now you, you, you view China, at least at least Americans do, as sort of this formidable, formidable economic competitor. What are you hoping that people that pick up this book and look through their images experience as a result of looking at this, at looking at the work that you've accomplished here? I think as far as the book... If you compare it with the other books 
of photos about China that are found on Amazon, it's literally the only book that's about the people. Uh, all the other photographic books about China that have been done in the past are about, you know, beautiful sunsets over the Great Wall and, you know, the landscape of Guilin and the geography. It's all landscape photography. It's stunning to be sure, but no one has ever focused on the people. And I think that's an insult, actually. I mean, even even a company like National Geographic, the books that they produced about China are only geography. They're only landscapes. It's all it's as if National Geographic was too timid to approach the Chinese people. And that kind of makes me smile <laughs> because here, you know, for however long the camera's been around and no one's ever dared to photograph a Chinese person before. And it's I, I, I still smile about it today. So I'm I'm proud in that regard that my book is probably the first and still one of the only to be specifically about life and people and society here. In that regard, I think people can take away a lot about the culture because of learning about what make China tick, you know, what what keeps China working beyond the tourism industry. Is there a particular person or encounter that you had during those two years that is sort of a standout for you that you feel like, wow, this is if, by making this choice to travel around and making pictures in the way that I did, I met someone and had an experience that I never would have had otherwise. Is there, is there one, one of those that you, you can touch on? There's, <laughs> there's hundreds of those. One that I really like, there's a photo in Sichuan. It's right on the Sichuan-Gansu border. And there was, that area is a Tibetan enclave. And there's a really uh, beautiful but relatively unknown Buddhist temple there that is used as a pilgrimage site for Tibetan Buddhists. I had gone there and I had spent a few days there taking pictures and there was this Tibetan family who were doing koras around the temple and the koras, you know, you're basically walking around in a circle all day long t praying. That's what a kora is. And uh, they had, were on their, they were taking a break basically. They went to lunch and uh, invited me into their home after they had seen that I was photographing them while they were praying. Um, and we hung out in this small little shanty. They didn't live there. It's just rented out to the pilgrims. But it's basically a, a mud hut. And uh, they had a wood-burning fire on, and they were preparing a, a really meager lunch. Um, but it was, it was a pretty big family for that, you know, for China. It was, you know, a mother, father, three daughters, and a, and one of the daughter's babies. But they brought me right in and no, we couldn't understand each other at, at all. It was just a special moment just being there with them. And I got a shot. Well, I got two really cool shots. The first one, they were just giggling their heads off. Uh, and the other one, they're completely dead serious. So when you look at these pictures side by side, it, 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 it warms my heart, you know, just to remember that moment where they're, you know, so dead serious, like petrified of the camera. And the next moment they're just burst into giggles. <laughs> well, my last question is I always ask my guests to suggest uh, another photographer 
for our listeners to discover and explore. And it could be anyone, someone that you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one person be and why? Well, if we're going to keep it to China, for me, I'm a... I'm a fan of Eve Arnold. Mm, yeah. And she passed away at a grand old age. I think it was last year. And she was actually more famous for being Marilyn Monroe's personal photographer. But before that, she was the first Western photographer to be admitted into new China after China's opening up. And what she did was she created this body of work of... Chinese culture that went beyond, you know, the landscape. She was focusing on the people also. The thing was, is that she had minders during her entire trip. She was basically heavily guarded by Chinese minders, government minders. And she was told exactly what she could photograph and what she couldn't photograph. And you, and when you see her book, which is called In China, you get that from her photos that, you know, everything was set up for her. But there are some really special photos in that book also that I'm pretty sure, though I can never be certain, but I'm pretty sure that she snuck on her from her own free time, you know, when nobody was looking. To me, she's kind of a hero in that regard, not just because she was the first Western photographer to capture New China, but because she was able to escape her minders and get some stunning, absolutely gorgeous photographs in spite of all of the authority around her. And that's a great suggestion because she was an amazing photographer. For those people out there who have not been familiar with her work, this is a great opportunity to check her out because she, she was really a wonderful shooter. Yeah, you guys should buy In China by Eve Arnold and also China Portrait of a People by Tom Carter. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find out more about uh, you and, and your work? Is there a particular website or blog that they can go to? Sure, I'm all over the place. Um, and I'm completely accessible. If anyone ever wants to ask me questions, just send me an email. I'm not the snobby guy who doesn't reply to emails. I have a Facebook page just you know, Google China Portrait of a People and the Facebook page will come up where I interact with people all the time about photography and literature in China. Um, and my book, of course, is on Amazon. Oh, great. Well, Tom, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to, to, to chance to talk to you. And thank you so much for sending me a copy of the book. I can attest that it's, it's really wonderful. Thank you. I, I thank you very much. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is... The Candid Frame.